0: We all want to feel better, be happier, and have more freedom, and there are endless resources at our fingertips, but wading through a sea of self-help books, podcasts, and workshops takes more time than anyone has, except me. That's my job. I curate and translate the latest, most effective personal development wisdom to help you elevate your personal experience and improve the way you show up for others. I'm Kevin Miller, and this is Self-Helpful. Your work and why to remember your why over your what. How many times have you been asked, so what do you do? Meaning what work do you do? A primary way we establish hierarchy in our culture. But have you ever had anyone follow and ask why you do what you do? Have you asked yourself recently? And the answer must go deeper than just for the money. If there's no meaning for you in your work beyond just money, then ask what that money is for. I mean, it's supporting something you care about, even if it's merely food and shelter. This was brought back to my attention by Arthur Brooks, who is back with me to walk and talk through his personal values and habits. When I asked him about his values regarding his career, he spoke to his efforts to stay aware of the why of what he does, as opposed to just the what. Arthur is a Harvard professor, a columnist at The Atlantic, a ridiculously in-demand speaker, and author of 12 books, the most recent being the focus of my series with him here, From Strength to Strength, Finding Success, Happiness, and Deep Purpose in the Second Half of Life. You'll find that Arthur is a very intentional person and deeply considers all areas of his life. Spiritually, he seeks where he can lift the world and not just himself. In his pursuit of health, I found it interesting that he cited he's not necessarily happy to be exercising, but it helps him be less unhappy. Interesting way to look at it. Regarding money, at this stage of his life, he's eager to simplify the stuff he owns and puts his focus on binging experiences. It's quite an interesting journey through one of our culture's leading experts in his life and his pursuit of happiness, where he is the expert. The self-helpful podcast was founded through the Zig Ziglar Corporation. And June 15 and 16 of 2023, I'm going to be in Dallas to attend and speak at the Ziglar Coach Summit. If you're looking to influence people for the better, professionally or personally, I invite you to join us. Go to Ziglar, Z-I-G-L-A-R dot com slash coach summit. Following these sponsors who help make the show possible and provide great resources for your life, I bring you Arthur Brooks and a walk through his personal values and habits and a continued discussion about leveraging the second half of life. You can find Arthur at arthurbrooks.com. I went through some segments of the book. I don't always do that, but our conversation even just flowed so well through those. And the next one, if I had continued, is – I'm going to let you pronounce it. Start your – Vana v- Thank you. Okay. And that was moving into more of an aspect of spirituality. So uh, just on a personal note with you, as we you talk about this, that you were looking at spiritual to ask you, what are your today, your values? How do you practice those in your daily life? And you talk about in the book that you were raised in, an in essence, a Christian home, you converted to uh, Roman Catholic. And so today that is a primary part of your life tell me about the values that you hold there and how you practice
1: those mm-hmm. so i'm i am my catholic faith is the most important thing in my life um i'll state that up front and you know not everybody listening to us can relate to that exactly because the people are in different places in their spiritual journey but i go to mass every day with my wife um, when i'm in boston i'm on the road 48 weeks a year but not the entire week and so i'm, I'm usually in at home about four days a week, and I and I go to mass every day. I pray um, my rosary, which is an ancient Catholic meditative prayer, <clears throat> it takes about half an hour every night, um, and it's incredibly important to me. I've also studied a lot of other uh, religious traditions. Um, I've done extensive and very deep work with His Holiness the Dalai Lama, somebody that um, I, I just got. I was just very recently. I was in Dharamsala at his at his uh, um, monastery where he lives uh, with his monks and And spent several days working with him. We're working on a book project together as a matter of fact. Mm. And I've studied with Hindu masters. I've studied with um, you know rabbis and imams and a lot of spiritual traditions. So I have a lot of love for spiritual and religious traditions that are not my own and and by the way, for humanist traditions that are not explicitly religious, at all. I, I've learned a great deal from people who are experts in the Stoic philosophy, mm-hmm. for example, and people who are even atheists, but who are trying to live the best possible, most fulfilling, and other focused life. So, this really is the core of my existence, I have to say. And I'm grateful for it.
0: And so you listed that out, that those are the mass daily. My gosh, I think I just heard that. We had Patrick Lencioni on the show recently. Yeah. He goes to mass every single
1: day. And- oh, it's a game changer, man. It really is. I mean, I start off, I, I get up in the morning and I I get up at 4.45, probably like you. I'm in the gym for an hour. I shower and I go to mass at 6.50 every morning. And you know, by the time I have my coffee and I'm at my desk, I'm at you know 7.30 in the morning and I'm good to go. Do you do yeah. it as an aspect of
0: meditation are you looking to gain new knowledge tell me the the benefit that you're looking at in mass every day
1: so it's a funny thing about the religious life generally speaking you start off in religious or spiritual or contemplative life because you want specific benefits in much the same way that you would um getting in physical shape right that's much how you do it and what you migrate to and what you find relatively quickly is that the what what you're seeking to do is to lift up the world and not yourself. Hmm. And I've actually learned this from the great Buddhist master. So in, in Buddhism, somebody who is said to attain enlightenment and have a Buddha nature is called a Bodhisattva. It's a it's a Sanskrit word, bodhisattva. And what a bodhisattva in, in Buddhist teaching is that they're they, they're they're no longer subject to the endless cycle of birth and rebirth, so-called samsara, you know, reincarnation over and over and over and over again. But they choose to reincarnate because they want to come back and lift other people up. Hmm. This turns out to be the cosmic secret of the religious life. Is not I do it because it makes me feel better to do it. It makes me feel better it makes the world better for me to be in union with God, for me to spread the ideas and the goodness to others. And in so doing, I feel better, but it becomes secondary and, and, and it's very difficult to describe. And so people who are not religious, they're going to be like, I don't get it. I don't get it. Okay, And you're not going to get it. You just have to experience it as it turns out. And it, it's, it's actually bliss.
0: <laughs> we talked about that in the in the beginning of our first talk together, Arthur, about the evolving, not looking at, you know, going to the backside of life, but evolving to a second half of life, of elevating right. that. And in this, it reminds me, I mean we know the deathbed regrets are mostly about, you know, the meaning that we had with other people. I'd say on planet Earth, but right. I think with other people. And I, I feel like that's what you're saying with your spiritual devotion is coming to that you know, as soon as possible of that is where we find meaning. Cause we know it is, we know the achievement feels good, but at the end of the day, man, I want to have been a benefit to someone's yeah. life that when I leave, that there was something that I did leave behind that's enduring. I don't know what that is. I just uh, not long ago went with 12 guys to Mexico and we went to have adventures and surf and have some fun, but it was also to talk about legacy. And as we talked about that, what really came to light as there's nothing that we're going to achieve or earn. That's really going to be a valuable legacy. Leaving money to my family may cause more harm than good. It's only, the only legacy that seems to be rock solid enduring is if I can connect with someone and help lift their life is is what we came to. So I hear you. It's a confirmation. Thank you.
1: Well, and totally. And, And this is the key thing with my own adult children. You know, the greatest satisfaction that I have is the good things that they're able to do in their lives that I can actually chart back to the way that they were raised. Those are the greatest satisfactions, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I, I want them to be happy even if I don't, can't take any credit for it. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. Um, but it's funny because you don't know. I mean, I have, I have three kids. My kids are 24, 22, and, and 19. And uh, my 24-year-old, uh, is he got married nine months ago, and their baby is due in a week. So, you know, getting started quick, you know, make them, you know, raise them as Catholics. They do Catholic stuff is what it comes down to. (laughs) My my middle son, my middle son is interesting because he's a U.S. Marine. He's a scout sniper in the Marine Corps. He's an operator, which means that, you know, he goes on field trips and Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's where is he? I don't know. (laughs) Um, But he was he struggled in high school. He really struggled. You know, he struggled. um, Part of it was just. You know, he was goofing around, but part of it was he didn't have a strong sense of meaning. you know he had a lot of kind of this adolescent on we that a lot of, a lot of kids have and I remember you know uh, talking to him about you know purpose and meaning in his life, having to have very much to do with his spiritual life and, and you know what it was all about. and I said, Carlos, you need to be able to answer two questions and this is based on the research by the way. so this is not just dad stuff. this right. is actually social science dad stuff. You need to be able to answer two questions to have a sense of purpose in your life. Why are you alive and for what would you be willing to die? You need answers to those questions. Go find answers to those questions. Yeah. And he didn't go to college. He went. He worked on a farm with his hands picking rocks out of the soil and build, rebuilding fences and running a harvester for a couple of couple of harvests and made a bunch of money then he joined the marines but he didn't just join the marines he did it the hard way right you know it was the infantry training battalion and then into you know it became a did weapons and then from weapons into sniper doing this in, unbelievably hard in dock that they have to do and and uh, now i can answer, ask him these questions and he has answers why are you alive he says because god made me he's a catholic man carlos for what would you be willing to die for my faith, for my family, and for the United States of America. That's his answer. It's solid, dude. It's solid. I mean, it's not everybody's answer. I get it, right? And and so with these answers, he knows who he is as a person. He's married. He's 22. He just got married. You know? I'm going to have a lot of grandkids. And uh, that's all I can say. I better save for a lot <laughs> of college educations because yeah. it's, it's going to add up. Yeah. <laughs> but. He, you know, the love that he has in his life and the purpose that he has in his life, it actually comes from this understanding of who am I, which is the two big purpose questions, much of it rooted in the faith that I've tried to demonstrate to him, really didn't have anything to do with what I said, but how I tried to live as a person when yeah. it comes down to, and that's, that's the satisfaction that we can actually get as people, but not just because, I mean, he doesn't care what my speaking fee is, yeah. it means nothing to him. If my book is number two or number one on the New York Times bestseller list, it's just how dumb he cares about, you know, his dad and his family and the relationships that he has. And what he's proud of is the fact that he's a he's a Brooks and he's a Catholic and he's an American and he's a Marine. You know, he knows who he is because of these particular values.
0: Well, you're on relationships, and that is the next category here. Obviously, that's a primary part of your book. We just talked about that to your aspen trees of uh, taking care of relationships. We know that that's A, as your buddy Bob Waldinger and his study, and you guys, you work within. What makes us happy? It is relationships. When you look at them today, though, there's got to have been an evolution for you as to how you looked at relationships at one point now, especially through your work and your own life experience, how you, or what values you put on relationships today. Tell me about it.
1: Well, I'm not perfect. I mean, the reason that I study happiness is not because it's interesting research, but because it's valuable me search. I, I mean, I'm doing this work because I need it. You know, I need the answers to this. I'm not a naturally happy person. Um, I, I, st- I score below average on happiness scales. Um, oh. and, and part of it is that, you know, I have a very high negative affect. But, well, you, c- you can separate happiness and unhappiness because they're actually processed in different hemispheres of the brain. And happy and unhappy moods can co-occur. So you find people who are very high affect. They're high negative affect, high positive affect are called mad scientists. And, you know, the people who are low and low, low affect are kind of the judges. People who are high and positive and low and negative are cheerleaders. I mean, people who are high and, po- and negative and low and positive are kind of the poets. These are these temperaments that we have with respect to positive and negative affect. I'm super high in both, super high in both, and so the result of that is that I need to manage myself. And and for the longest time, the way I tried to manage myself is by achieving, by achieving more and more and more. And as I, fortunately, I'm a social scientist who also studies philosophy and neuroscience. And, and I was able, through my research, to figure out that I was on the wrong track relatively early. Hmm. Um, but it, there was a lot of years of heartache, I'm telling you. I mean, for the first 12 years of my career, I mean, I left college at 19. I was a professional classical musician for a long time, really at the top of my game. I was the principal French horn player in the Barcelona Orchestra. I mean, it was, it was, a, I mean, it was like pro cycling. Yeah. It was like, holy moly, right? Then I left... You know, because it wasn't going the way I wanted it to go. And when I went and got my PhD and then I started working my way up the ladder as an academic. Um, going trying to get into the best school, trying to, you know, get the best job, trying to get the promotion, the tenure, the endowed chair, this whole thing, and and then, you know, run the company and then write the books. And, and I'm like, I'm not happy. I'm not happy. What am I missing? And my wife, my long-suffering wife Esther, she says. You don't have enough love in your life. You're not taking the most important thing seriously. I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. Love for what? She says love for God, love for me, love for your kids, love for your friends, love for everybody through your work by serving people as opposed to serving yourself. And I'm like, all right, I'll check it out. And so I didn't just think about it. I didn't go away and think about it. I did the work. I actually ran the data. I looked at the literature I I dug into the neuroscience, and she was dead spot on. She was exactly right. And so the result was, on the basis of this research, I changed my life. I changed my life. I made brand new commitments to my life. I quit my job as a CEO. I dedicated myself completely to writing and speaking and teaching about lifting people up and bringing them together in bonds of happiness and love, using science and ideas. What I do today is because it's what I wanted for my life. It's what I found to be true. And it's what I want to share with others. Bottom line. How does
0: that look like in Arthur Brooks daily life? If not daily, every other day, the consistent things that you're going to see. oh, I see him making this investment for relationships. Yeah. That's a yeah. tangible specific thing.
1: Yeah, yeah. So it's a, it's a, it's requiring a balance. It's trying to be in a, a relatively balanced life. I mean, I am on the road all the time, but I try I make, I make big efforts to never be gone on the weekends. Um, when I'm in Boston, I never go out at night. So I eat dinner with my family. Whenever I'm here, I start every day when I'm here, going to mass with my wife, um, with my, my son and daughter-in-law who live, one of my sons and one of my daughters-in-law who live right here. We see we see them constantly. I talk to all three of my adult kids on FaceTime every single day, whether they like it or not. I did not have a close relationship with my parents yeah. and, and all the way to my greatest regret, Kevin is that I was going through my 20s and 30s. I was thinking, my parents are such interesting people. My father was a brilliant mathematician, professor. My mother was a professional artist, incredibly creative. And I'm thinking, they're such interesting people. I'll have time to get to know them, right? I was making the wrong calculation. You should always ask yourself, how many more Thanksgivings do you have with your parents? It's fewer than you think. Mm -hmm. I I, I make my students do it like a a discounting problem on that, actually. And, And I thought I'd have more time, but then they died. They died young. 66 and 73 and one of them was demented and it was not a happy thing. It was a really, really bad thing. So I made the, I made the commitment as this was going on that it wasn't going to be that way with my own kids. And so I have these protocols in place where I can do my work. I can share the ideas. I can meet people to lift them up and bring them together, but I will not, I will not marginalize my relationship with God nor with my closest friends whom I talk to very frequently Certainly not with my wife or my adult kids. It's just not going to happen. I, you know, I, I make sure that the institutions are in place in my life.
0: On that same note of devotion to a priority, something that you value there, on the health and wellness side specifically, yeah. that's one where you already told me that you're you miss a day, a month maybe on your… Okay. Exercise. Yeah. So, so we'll start there, literally on the, yeah. on the exercise. And I appreciate you too talking about, I mean, your livelihood, your joy, your interest is coming out of your skull, your coconut, right. you said. And yet I know that you're vastly aware that that thing is housed in this overall body. So Part of uh, your body. Part it's of your body. Organ. Yeah. yeah. So there, so tell me about the, uh, yeah. yeah, as you look at, yeah, kind of that your perspective on health and wellness. So you're working out every day. It doesn't look like you're, or I don't get the idea that you're trying to go for the next, you know, uh, Olympic trials and, and get in right. there. So put the value there. I'm doing it yeah. for this reason.
1: Yeah. So to begin with, one thing to understand in my field of happiness and, and physical fitness, a lot of people think that they're happier when they exercise. They're not. They're less unhappy. So remember, happiness and unhappiness are separable. One of the reasons that certain people have a horribly hard time staying on an exercise protocol is usually because they tend to be low, naturally unhappy people. Their their negative affect levels are low to begin with, so they got nothing to lower with their exercise. If you have high negative affect levels, you'll feel much better when you go to the gym because it'll lower your negative affect.
0: I, I don't want to get derailed on that, Arthur, but yeah. this is the second time you brought it up. and. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I live in the self-help world. I am not familiar with what you're talking yeah. about here. Where, I know, I
1: know, well, I know, I know.
0: So give me, this give is me the key thing. give me a this resource, more, literally.
1: Yeah, yeah. So this, the new book that I've got coming out in September actually talks, is there's a, anybody who wants to see the work on this. If you go to the internet and you, and you Google uh, a test about affect called PANAS, P-A-N-A-S. It's the positive affect, negative affect survey. And when you take that, it'll measure your positive affect and your negative affect separately. And so you'll know what quadrant you're in. And if you're either in the mad scientist quadrant, which is high negative affect and high positive affect like me, or if you're a poet, which is low positive and high negative, you'll feel way better when you exercise. Not because your positive effect is going up, but because your negative effect is going down. That's the cognitive and psychological benefit that you tend to get from exercise. Now, there's lots of reasons to exercise besides getting less unhappy. Lots of reasons for that. What I'm saying is that people who don't have naturally high unhappiness levels – they have a harder sti- time staying on an exercise protocol because they're not getting the immediate payoff where they just feel better from it, right? Yeah. And when people say I'm so much happier when I exercise, they're mistaking the unhappiness and the happiness balances that they've yeah. got in their in their and their sort of inside their heads is what it comes down to. So from hap from a from a net net you know happiness unhappiness standpoint, yeah. exercise can be tremendously beneficial if you struggle from anxiety, depression, or just general day-to-day unhappiness. And a lot of people have that. I mean, I don't have a a mood disorder, but, you know, left to my devices, I got a lot of unhappiness. So I lower it by doing that. That's number one. Number two Mm -hmm. is you need longevity to be able to do the things to have the love in your life. You know, you owe it to other people to be, you know, kicking – So you can, I want to be able to carry my grandkids around, and and furthermore, I want to be able to enjoy my life and my relationships as I have it now. And I, I got to keep the saw very sharp. Okay, now how do I do that? You know, for me, there's a couple of things that are just, you know, basic, obvious things. When you're after fifty years old, if you're not taking care of your diet, you're you're gonna have trouble with your weight, you're gonna have trouble with your blood work, you're gonna have trouble with a whole bunch of the indices that tend to turn upside down. You're gonna wind up on 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 statin drugs, yeah. probably. You're gonna and, and again, some people have to take them even if they take care of themselves. That's not so my point is there's nothing morally wrong with taking these things. On the contrary, I'm glad they exist. But I want to avoid it if I can. Right. And if you don't take care of your diet, you're going to unnecessarily be doing things that will be quite deleterious to your health. Remember, you don't see 85-year-old people who are morbidly obese, horribly alcoholic or chain smokers. Why? Because those are the things that are going to wind up killing you. Yeah. Is substance abuse, tobacco use and 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 un, and disordered eating is what it's going to turn out to be. That's number 1. But then it's actually keeping your body strong. You know, it's a, after 50, you, 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 it's a big difference between guys who've never lifted guys who've never done any endurance sports guys. You see it like, right, Kevin, Yeah. you see, okay. you see a huge difference between how they feel, you know, watch them sit down and stand up like, uh, you know, 55 years old. And it's that you're not old is the bottom line. You can basically, if you take care of yourself, if you commit yourself to doing some you don't have to do an hour a day like me. You don't have to do 10,000 steps plus an hour in the gym, which I try to do every day. You can do less than that. But you got to commit yourself to something and if you do, you can basically stop the clock. You're going to have some aches and pains. I got a thing in my back that always hurts, mm-hmm. right? So I'm going to a guy who's like, "Yeah, you know, this isn't working and that, and I'll stick needles in it and we'll try to work it out." You're always going to have that kind of, That's actually because of my exercise, not for my lack of exercise. But that's a, that's an absolute sacrifice I'll make. Because if you don't, you're going to have all these weird aches and pains and health problems that are going to be limiting to you. And they're going to get more and more limiting to you. And what you want is for it to be super you know, spry and mobile when you're 80 – and the only way to do that is to be extremely active when you're 50.
0: Yeah, to be spry today. Yeah, it's funny you talk about the groaning. That's a that's a hot button. So my buddy's a functional medicine doctor. Uh, we share offices. He's on the other side of the office right now. And he talks about the old man, uh, what's it called the old man stand up. But I think about yeah. it. So down on the floor, I still got little kids. So down on the floor, cross-legged. And he says, you get up without using your hands and there's no grunting allowed. And I think about that being spry. You know, that's uh, my kids jump yeah. up. They don't groan and grunt. Why on earth would I want to, do to start that habit? I, I do want to ask on the nutrition side, well, on both of them, just a real quick synopsis of literally what you do. So nutritionally, yeah. any specific structure of diet that you do adhere to?
1: Yeah, I, I am, you know, I'm a, I'm a protein guy. Um, I, I feel much better and I also I also know that you metabolize protein um, less and less and less efficiently as you get older so whereas when I was 35 or forty years old I could be you know maintain plenty of muscle mass at 100 grams of protein a day I need 175 or 200 grams of protein a day and I space that out you know in you know in in, in usually four boluses of protein per day and i watch that and i make sure um i'm not a vegan i'm not a vegetarian i, I actually eat animal protein i eat a- clean animal protein every day ethically sourced etc cetera, etc cetera. Yeah. but i i try to get 200 grams of protein a day if i'm tr- if i'm you know watching my calorie count getting 200 grams of protein with 2000 calories is really tricky it means that you're basically eating, you know, lean protein and vegetables uh, most of the day too. But there's nothing wrong with that. You're gonna feel really, really good if you do that. It just means you're not having any Hagen Doss, is what it comes down <laughs> yeah. to. Uh, right? Yeah, yeah. Fair. So that's that's more or less what the diet comes down to. I'm watching my macros. Um, the supplements that I take are pretty straightforward. I mean the the data are ambiguous at best about multivitamins, et cetera. And most of the supplements that we take, but the weight of the evidence is that there's nothing bad about it. So you might as well do it. And so I take, you know, I supplement with creatine monohydrate, um, uh, some essential amino acids, which makes it, I find that I I recover a little bit faster from my lifting days, et cetera, et cetera. And I got to say, Kevin, I feel better physically at 58 than I did at 28. And my lifts are better at 58 than they were at 38. So, um, you can do a lot, maybe it's old man's strength. I'm not sure, but, um, you can, you can do a lot under those circumstances. Also, by the way, don't eat in restaurants. Don't, yeah. <laughs> don't eat in restaurants. Eat at home. Yeah,
0: yeah absolutely. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's interesting as an endurance guy, I would rather just ride run all day long. And yet I see these 80 year old guys out there. They're doing it, but they're shuffling along. They're not spry. They couldn't jump down and do some burpees. So I got to make the effort on the resistance side. So real quick on the hour in the gym, what are right. you doing?
1: So I'm, I I usually follow a, a basic push-pull legs protocol in the gym. <clears throat> so I'm making sure that I'm not doing any body part more than about two times per week. And I'm not actually going as heavy as I possibly can. I'm also super careful with my joints. Hmm. This is the thing. When I was in my 30s, um, I, I used to go to these gyms and I would always find the oldest dude that was still moving weight. And I would say hey, – because they'll always tell you their secrets. And the, they always told me the same thing. It's like – Use dumbbells, boy. Don't, don't, don't be trying to move a bar with a ton of weight on it because that, mm. that limited range of motion is going gonna, gonna to hurt your shoulders. And you want to be using your shoulders after you're 50 and 60 years old. And the way to do that is to continue to you know use barbell, the dumbbells. Don't be lifting the most weight you possibly can. For volume, start actually going for higher reps. Now, the new research is very clear. Back in the day, if for muscle hypertrophy is 8 to 12 reps, that's not right. We know that the twenty to thirty rep range is plenty good for muscle hypertrophy to keep uh, to keep bone density and muscle hypertrophy in a pretty good place. Know your own genetics is what it comes down to. So you're not trying to do something that would be appropriate for you know a stocky guy at five foot eight. I'm a six foot two skinny guy, yeah. and so you have to make sure that you're not you know holding yourself up to standards that you can't attain. And so the result is that that I will be doing whatever it happens to be. I'm, you know, I, I do a little bit of cardio too because I've got a, an elliptical machine. Depending on the weather, but I like to walk for an hour a day, and then I like to move weight for an hour a day. That's that's the two things I like to do. And when I'm walking, I'm, you know, I'm saying prayers or I'm listening to a, I'm listening to your podcast or whatever I happen to be doing. And um, and so I can actually use that time really usefully. Or if it's before dawn, which I like to do, I'd like it without um without devices so the first half hour is before dawn without devices the second half hours where i'm getting sunlight in my eyes um this is all related to actually how you can start your day best and have the most creative energy in the first part of the day and have a very very strict dopamine inducing protocol for that so i can get as much work done um be- between about the time seven thirty in the morning and noon
0: the next one's mind and mental health and yeah. you talked about that. You go to mass daily. I mean, that's a mental health yeah. you know, stabilizer. You talked about prayer. So on one hand, I'll ask, well, no, I'll look at that as a state of mind. When you look and go, this is the state of mind I want, what comes, right. to, what, what comes to mind there? What bubbles up at the surface? This is what I'm trying to achieve.
1: Yeah, well, for, for me, um, everybody knows what they need to do differently for sure for if i'm left to my devices i've got the monkey mind in a big way i'm like i'm really super high strung i can't get the machine off at night i need peace and perspective and i need to corral my productive energies into a particular time frame and so i know physiologically how to do that based on the neuroscience um, based on the research, I'm a researcher, which makes it a lot easier as a scientist to be able to do this stuff. And so what I do for, to, to induce the state of mind that I need for peace, for example, when I'm trying to go to bed at night, but also for focus when I'm trying to do my work. Again, I'm an idea guy, right. which means that I need to, to focus my attention on doing my creative work, doing my deep creative work. <clears throat> you get about three hours of deep creative work a day. <clears throat> no matter who you are, you don't get more. I mean, if you're some sort of superhuman and you're, and you're, you know, you're pounding vivance or Adderall or Ritalin, by the way, don't do that because those yeah. are bad and addictive psychostimulants. Yeah. Um, if, you're, if they're not prescribed to you, I mean, don't do that um, illicitly. Um, if you're not doing that, you're going to get three hours a day. And so the way that I do that is I make sure that all of my, my protocols in the morning are setting me up for that. So when I wake up at 4.45 in the morning, and I work out for an hour. I'm not taxing my mental state. I'm not trying to learn neuroscience while I'm moving weight around. I'm usually listening to trivialities about you know the markets and you know all that kind of stuff that I can you know I'm an economist. I, I can do that stuff. You know,
0: right.
1: I don't have to use any brainwaves for that. Then I go to mass, and then on the usually on the way home from mass, especially if I walk home, I get sunlight in my eyes. Now what am I doing? I've waited at least an hour and a half or two hours before I even get any caffeine in my system because I'm clearing the adenosine in my brain. Adenosine is an inhibitory neuromodulator that makes you relax. Hmm. What happens is you wake up in the morning. You still have a ton of it in your brain floating around. You want it to resolve itself. Why? Because caffeine blocks the adenosine mo- the, uh, uh, receptors in your brain receptors on the neurons that would fit adenosine, caffeine blocks it. Caffeine doesn't pep you up. It it doesn't allow you to not be pepped up. That's really what's going on. If there's adenosine floating around in your brain already – and when, the, when the, the, the caffeine molecules, when they metabolize and they come out, all the adenosine will suddenly go back in and you'll crash and want to fall asleep at two or three in the afternoon. You don't want that. So wait at least an hour and a half to two hours after you wake up before your caffeine, do your exercise during that period and get natural light in your eyes, then pound your coffee and then sit down to do your work and have three hours of deep work where nobody bothers you. You will have max dopamine, max attention, max focus. That's when all your creative work has to happen. No emails, no distractions, no stupid Zoom meetings with, you know, dumb thing this Saturday. That, that. No, 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 no. Don't do that because that's a waste. And if you need to write your book or your business plan or whatever it happens to be, you'll be just in the zone for that particular period of time. Then have your lunch and come back and do the work that you don't need that super intensive creative focus on. For the rest of the day.
0: Thank you. You know, I I generally ask in this too, where do you have, and you may already answered it, where do you have to guard against as far as for your mental state? And is for you, is that the monkey mind, just the consistent? So that's where you're, okay.
1: Yeah. It's the distractions that come from my monkey mind and the distractions come from outside. Yeah. And so the, the endogenous and the exogenous distractions that come to me. And the way that I do that is with my neurophysiological protocols and if, and with my scheduling protocols. My staff is really, really aware that nobody gets in in the morning. Nobody gets in in the morning. Now, the problem is when I get in in the morning and I start answering emails and I start goofing around and I start looking at, you know, well, this thing happened in the news. And, uh, it's a huge problem because I can literally spend my best hours on you know something as stupid and destructive as Twitter. Yeah. If I'm not if I'm not being very um, meticulous and disciplined about about what I'm trying to do, so that you know eight to eleven is just golden for me. Sometimes I can get eight to 12, if, you know, God is smiling on me on that particular day. And I've had God and Starbucks are smiling on me (laughs) sufficiently.
0: Yeah. Fair enough. I do want to ask, I mean, you talk back to that aspect of the positive and negative effect that you said you have, you're not, you don't tend towards just happiness. Right. I mean, I mean, explain that because that's what we feel like, okay, we're going to put our lives in this order. We're going to have these achievements. We're going to do it because we want to be happy. We want to be happy all the time. And you're saying that's not your default.
1: Yes. No, it isn't my default. And most strivers, they generally they don't just have high positive affect. They also have high negative affect. Why? And why does that make them strivers? Because people have high negative affect They they are they're getting chased. Strivers are getting chased. I mean, don't don't let them fool you. I mean, these you know, super high achievers like, no, I'm just killing it every day of my own volition. No, something's chasing you. That's why you're running so fast. That's a a lot of what's going on with most drivers. They tend to my mad scientist profile is a lot of people who have this who are listening to us right now. It's very common among entrepreneurs. It's very common for people who are trying to work at a really, really high level. Now, that's not the enemy. Your negative affect is not the enemy. Unhappiness is not the enemy uh, because unhappiness has all kinds of benefits to it. What? I mean, it's like uh, the the dissatisfaction can allow you you to grow as a person. You don't find the sense of purpose and meaning in your life except through loss and fear and all these terrible things that are happening to you. What you need to do with your negative affect, which is a a symptom of your unhappiness, your mood is not your happiness. Your mood is actually evidence of your happiness or unhappiness. And if you have high negative affect, you need to manage it, learn from it, and grow from it. Those are the things that you actually need to do. Learn from it insofar that, and that you understand actually why this is happening and grow from it, meaning that you're using it. Managing it, you know, basically I have all kinds of techniques for this. Metacognition is a, mm-hmm. is a standard set of operating techniques where your limbic system delivers negative affect to you and you manage it so it can't manage you. For example, journaling is a metacognitive technique to manage negative affect. Therapy, talking to a friend, Meditation, prayer, mass, these are all metacognitive techniques so that you can manage your affect such that it doesn't manage you. Emotional substitution is another way that we do this, where we, we recognize the emotions that we're feeling and we put parallel emotions in their place. So, for example, if you're the kind of person who... Every time you feel really, really pessimistic, that you decide to make a list of the things that you're grateful for, that's emotional substitution. That's, by the way, hmm. that's caffeine instead of adenosine. Okay. You've got emotions that are going into the receptors that you don't, that you want to block from these negative emotions. You got to work on the techniques. That's what I do in my research, and that's how I actually manage my own my own levels of negative affect.
0: Man, thanks for this. Is people are gonna be taking notes on this? Thanks for the the guidance here. The next one here. Arthur is work, career, and business. And to ask you about your values there, I mean, my gosh, that's really what part one we talked about, that your values, I'm going to assume, now you, you, you answer, but a primary one is shifting from the first half of life to the second half of life and, cre- right. and as, as I talked about creating that structure. But let me ask you, I mean, right now you've got a lot going on. You've got the right. book out now. You've got speaking engagements. You have a plethora of opportunities. So when you look at your work where would you say this is my value that helps me keep it within the containers and I want it
1: yeah the key thing with your work is to remember the why as opposed to the what as super high strivers people listening to us right now are going to be thinking about the what all the time what am I doing what am I doing what am I doing remember why you're doing what you're doing write it down, write a mission statement for what you're doing. And the reason is not so that you'll work less, but that you'll, you'll be smart in the way that you do it. And you'll make smart decisions. And, you know, and when I do this, I mean, I've made a, I mean, I have a company, you know, that, that manages all this. We have, I have a CEO, um, the companies in, 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 you know, in Northern Virginia, um, is separate than my academic work. And all all the employees, including my CEO, we all join hands and we say, this is the why of what we're trying to do. And we have four goals in order based on the mission statement. Number one, glorify God. Number two, lift up others. Number three, have a big adventure. Number four, make a living. Huh. Now, And it's, and it's not like, don't let number four become number one. Don't do it. But if all you're thinking is what, 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 these things are going to get out of order. And that's actually how I do The order of operations is critically important for understanding the nature of the work. So it can be a very high level. We can still be busting our picks. We can be really, really successful in worldly terms, but we're doing it for the right reasons. It's not money, power, pleasure, fame, as we talked about in the first episode. It's faith, family, friends, and work that serves for the sake of serving if we keep our order of operations straight.
0: Your career path has been: Would you put it in essence three categories? You went from being a professional musician, then your CEO of the think tank, and now you are where you are now. Is that fair? Yeah.
1: No. I was an academic in the middle, so okay. I was a okay. I was a professional French horn player. Then I was a I was a professor right. and researcher, you know, a, a social scientist doing you know basic scientific research, and they're in ten year chunks. So twelve years as a horn player. And then I, was, I went to graduate school, then I was 10 years as a professor, then I was 11 years as a CEO of this nonprofit. And now, th- however long I get on this one, it's writing and speaking and teaching. It's, it's basically doing the, you know, the happiness work in, in public life is what it comes down to. How do you view retirement at this point? So retirement is funny for strivers. And I work a lot. You know, I, I work a lot with athletes these days. Um, you know, I don't, I'm not a consultant or a coach. You know, I I'm a teacher. I go into companies and I you know I do workshops and I do a lot of public speaking. And so when you know when athletes and actors and people and CEOs call me, that's free. You know because I was I want <laughs> because these strivers, they re- and so when they all the biggest question that I get is how do I stop? How do I get? It's like getting off a unicycle that's ten feet tall. Mm-hmm. That's what it's like to be a striver. How do I mm-hmm. like how do I stop this crazy thing? That's a good analogy. I, I don't know how to get off this. I'm just going to go boom. Uh-huh. Okay. The way to do it for me and you and everybody else is not to stop. It's actually to to understand that you're going to be productive and you're going to be successful, but you need to do it on slightly different terms. So when I look at it, for example, a CEO, an 80-hour-a-week hard-driving CEO who's 70, and it has to stop for health reasons or for, you know – or they're just getting bumped because, you know, when you're in these those jobs in particular, you either leave before you're ready or you leave on somebody else's terms. Yeah,
0: that's fair.
1: You know, and it's like – and that's brutal. Either way is brutal. The way to do it is to look at next year when you're not going to be forced to be working 80 hours a week and to say, what is it that I most hate right now? And the answer is always the same. I hate being rushed That's what everybody says. Busy people are rushed all the time. You're at the gym, you're looking at your watch. You're at lunch, you're looking at your watch. You're on a meeting, you're looking at your watch because it's the next thing, next thing, next thing, next thing, next thing. Okay, number one, the number one goal is to not be rushed. That's the first priority for people who are going to step back. Strivers who are going to step back. Then, what does that mean? That means you've got to cut two-thirds of the stuff out of your schedule. You're going to keep doing important things. You're going to keep doing cool things. What are the two-thirds of things in your schedule that are least value-creating and least important? And you're going to cut them out so that you can do the one-third that's left without being rushed. That's how you retire. That's how you do it. That means you're going to go from 15 clients to three clients so that you can go to the gym and be like, if I want to work out for an hour and 45 minutes, that's what I'm going to do. I'm having lunch with a friend. If I want to be two hours at lunch with my friend and have three cups of coffee, it's what I'm going to do. It's what it comes down to. But you're still, instead of sitting on five boards, you're sitting on one board. And you see how it goes.
0: I do. And again, man, this is why you're standing here. You're here in the show. This is, you're barking up my tree right now because that's what I find out. That is the most frustrating thing is being rushed. I loathe it and I start... little by little, and this has been part of hiring more people and having team, like you talk about looking at what can I not do? Because I just want a day that's not rushed that I can just really, everybody
1: listening to us is listening to your show because they want an edge. And the one thing that's driving them crazy is that they feel rushed. And a bunch of people are like, should I listen to this episode until the end? Do I have time to listen to this to the end? The reason is because they're rushed and the reward for having a, successful and a fruitful and meaningful career is that you continue to create value, but you're not going to feel like a chicken with your head cut off anymore.
0: You just mentioned your four goals, order of operations. You said glorify God, lift up others, have a big adventure, make a living, make a living. That's the next category here is money and finances and wealth. So even as you've been doing this research and looking at this second half, this evolution of life, I'm going to call it, how have your have your values changed as you look at, and again, I would put money, finances, wealth, possessions, whatever, in one basket.
1: Yeah. People are funny because they have a tendency to, to, as they get more successful. And again, this is, this is very privileged stuff that, that, you know, the, a lot of the people listening to this and you and me that we're, we're, you know, we're okay financially. We're more than okay financially. The problem is that our experience of money hasn't kept up with actually what's going on in our lives. And so we tend to think with more of a scarcity mentality than is actually appropriate. Mm. So we're thinking more about, you know, I don't know, man, I shouldn't hire somebody for that because that's expensive. And, and we're always a little bit behind and it's, and it's, it it tends to make us make bad decisions. Now, if you're on the other side of that, which is that you're still that that resources are really, really scarce or they used to be abundant and now they're scarce, you can make the opposite side set of problems where you're wasting money and getting into trouble. But that's mm. not what I find with most drivers. Most drivers, what they do is that they'll, they'll you know, they'll, they'll hoard money and they'll work for money and they'll do things for money that they don't want to do and that are not a very good use of their time and, and not very good for their relationships because that would have been a really useful thing to do 10 years ago yeah. or five years ago or something. They're running their – million business, like a $5 million business, is a lot of what's going on. And so you got to stay with the times. Now, one of the things I recommend is get somebody to help you who's coming in fresh and looking in a very rational way at what your actual situation is and can help you make some decisions that make sense given your current circumstances, given the fact that you're you're probably too close to make these decisions yourself.
0: I am too close to everything in my world to make the decisions. It's taken a long time to understand that, especially when you're adept at stepping into somebody else's world and auditing that and seeing what's going on. You by proxy think you can do that with yourself and it's just been amazing how less... I think I have less ability to do that these days.
1: Yeah, no, it's a real problem. I you mean, know, I see people who are like, you know, uh, I'm I'm still cutting my grass, um, even though I don't, and, and that's just because you, you realize how much that costs. That costs like fifty bucks to pay somebody to do that. <laughs> yeah, and 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 not yeah. spending time with their grandchildren as a result of that. <laughs> yeah. And you know, okay, if that's your decision, you're doing that on purpose, fine. But but if you're doing it to save the money and, and you actually have the money. That's a mistake. I mean, yeah. by the way, there's a huge research on money and happiness. And you know, <clears throat> one of the things that we find is that, that mo- there are four things you can do with your money. You can spend it on stuff. You can give it away. You can buy time or you can buy experiences. Those are literally the four things. That's an exhaustive list of things you can do with your money. We all think because Mother Nature implants on us the idea that if we buy stuff that we're going to be happiest. That is, that is literally last hmm. – in the line of what's going to make you happiest. What's going to make you happiest is, is buying experiences with people that you love, followed by buying time that you can not fritter away on Instagram and other stupidities, but rather to spend with people that you love, followed by giving it away for causes that you love, and finally buying that fifth watch or that fourth car. Huh. That will bring you the least happiness is to do the thing that your, your brain most wants you to do.
0: I, that's still frustrating to me, looking at the next purchase and knowing that it's going to be giddy for about two days. And then yeah. it's going to be, it, it dissuades me. Brutal. It's, it's a little the depressed. The boat, it's, it's just going to
1: be a problem for you. I I, yeah. The boat is going to be like, ah, what do I do with the boat? I got to do something about the boat.
0: Yeah, yeah. So these days, I just go rent somebody else's boat, enjoy it for a day. And, totally. Uh, and then leave that's it That's right, behind.
1: man. That's right. Rent. I'm I'm all about the renting lifestyle.
0: I love it. Airbnb and VRBO. God bless you. I know. know. Um, Last one here, Arthur, is the, I want to know about your interests that I know everything you do, you know, it has an aspect of inspiration, but the thing that you do, especially, or if there is in a non-productive aspect, but I do this because it inspires me. It fills you with energy. Anything that goes in those categories?
1: Yeah, that's really a lot of what my spiritual life is all about. I'm mm-hmm. always trying to learn, not just in my own Catholic tradition, but in other spiritual traditions. And the reason is because that's something that I find that is an endless well of, of inspiration, of energy, of ideas, of um, uh, enlightenment. Um, it's just amazing to me that the more I learn, the more I, the more ideas that I actually get as a scientist, the more I get ideas I get as a father, as a husband. And so that's something that I just really, really love. The life of the mind that's centering on the transcendent mm-hmm. is something that's really, really important to me. I don't have traditional hobbies. um perhaps I should. I don't know how to golf, I don't know how to do that. I mean, I like to you know I like to hike and I like to ride my bike and I like to do all that kind of stuff, but I'm not doing it at the kind of level that you are because you're a pro. Or you're, you know, you're, you know, a super, super top level athlete. I don't have the traditional things. But, you know, that, that said, you know, between my work and my children and my wife and church and working out, not that many hours left.
0: <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Arthur, thank you. Thanks for the behind the scenes here. And just the uh, bringing the guidance of your message into each of these categories uh, is significant. I'm eager to bring it to everybody. And I'm eager to really just dig in and look at creating. I think I've been muddling within this structure that you've now defined and now to go over there and be intentional with it. And, and I am hopeful uh, and excited and inspired. So thank you for the work you've done to bring it to, to us. Thanks for the time today. I am uh, chief recipient, so uh grateful.
1: Yeah, you right on, Kevin. It. Thanks a lot. Thanks for the work that you're bringing, and, and thanks to everybody for listening to this. Let's, uh, you know, strivers unite. Let's, uh, let's work to lift people up and bring them together in bonds of happiness and love.
0: Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks. Well, there you have part two. In my four-part series with Arthur Brooks as we discuss the topic of his 12th book, a New York Times bestseller, Strength to Strength, Finding Success, Happiness, and Deep Purpose in the Second Half of Life. It is a profound message to me personally. You can get that book wherever you get your books and you can find him at arthurbrooks.com. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Self-Helpful Podcast, where I strive to help you and me elevate our personal experience of life and the way we show up for others. Stay driven, my friends.